It is Wednesday, November 10th, 2021. This is Messiah Matters number 364. Rob gave me COVID virtually. My name is Caleb Hag. <laughs> you caught me there. I'm just grooving, grooving. I'm Rob. <laughs> yeah. So um, everybody got the COVID. Thanks a lot, Rob. Sending your COVID germs through the uh, through the internet interwebs. I am the inventor of inventor of virtual COVID. <laughs> Boy, digital yeah. the digital vid. It's been hard, man. It's been hard. They shut down our entire church building. Did I tell you that? I didn't tell you that. Instead of the woo flu, the Wi-Fi flu. <laughs> um, yeah, they uh, they they shut down our church building. I feel bad because now was there, was there any uh, big piece of paper nailed to the door with a list of grievances yeah we actually played pin the thesis on the door <laughs> so actually yes there was <laughs> all the kids it's funny because there was no real point except for to blindfold the kids and have them and take pictures Spin them around right and uh and which we did and uh then uh we gave them candy of course so we got them all sugared up well anyway yeah i mean it was fun it was it was it was fun um yes nice very nice what's going what's been going on with you how you feeling man are you uh so you're you're presenting at sbl at society of biblical literature twice virtually so you since you're giving covid to everyone virtually do they know that you're going to give covid to everybody I, i'm going to sneak that i'm sneaking that in yeah well thanks a lot buddy if they're wearing their virtual mask they should be fine <laughs> okay okay fair enough um yeah so we're going so the rest of the staff is going to ets we're going to ETS. So next week, I don't think we'll have a show next week because I'll be at ETS. Can I tell you something that I haven't told you? This is totally off topic. Nobody cares about this, but I got to tell you this. So I'm I'm on academic probation at, at my school. And the reason why is because I, I'm part of a, it's a, um, it's a program where basically um, if you're in ministry and you're above a certain age and you've been in ministry for a long enough time and you, I mean, there's all these different hoops you got to uh, go through, but there's different programs where different seminaries will actually let you come and get an MDiv, uh, if you have enough life experience and whatnot that, uh, but you don't have an undergrad now I don't have an undergrad. And so, uh, I am now going to Southern Baptist for, uh, MDiv and uh, so there was a there was a whole process to get in. Anyway, with that said, um, I, I, I'm on academic pro- probation for 25 credits. And that's because they figure if you can't keep a B or above, then you're not really you, you need to go get an undergrad. Fair enough. I'm pulling an A with that. But at the same time. OK, so I'm looking at all the classes and I think to myself, well, should I go according to like what's logical? You know, like get the Christology and uh, systematic theology and, you know, all these things, ecclesiology, all these different things. Should I get these out of the way first? And that's kind of what I did with the first, you know, first semester. Or should I go for what I want just in case I don't pull a B and then I get kicked out? I mean, if I'm paying thousands of dollars, at least go for something you want, right? Well, so I looked through the list. Theology of Augustine is on there. And I'm like, nice. Yes. Now this that's is gonna a, be that's gonna be reading intensive, man. They I, I have to read five books, and every week there's four hours of lectures. Four that's interesting hours. You say that I don't know if this will be visible on the screen, but I've on my desk I've got this book. It's called yeah. Augustine, Augustine the Reader. The Reader, and it's awesome. Meditation, self knowledge, and the ethics of interpretation. I mean, Augustine was a heavy hitter man yeah his like that's his a, book that, on the trinity is like so you're you did you did sign up for that or you're thinking about it no i i signed up for it. that's how i know what what is in the class and i gotta say <laughs> i'm nervous now and you so in my in my class you have to take they call them live syncs they're like live classes that you take in the current class that i'm in you, there's one once a week so um out of an eight-week class there's actually six live syncs with this one the seminary only requires two live sinks. And so in the theology of Augustine, they've decided they're going to only have two. So they're required. You have to be at them. The first mm. one is two and a half hours. The second one is four hours. <laughs> That's, whoa. 
they're not messing around. Nope. Immersion, man. You got it. And my, my fellow student, Lee, in the uh, chat room says that's about the same workload for the hermeneutics class. Boy, oh boy. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for it because I, I'm pumped. I am pumped to get into the uh, theology of Augustine. At the same time, it is a daunting amount of work. So I can't believe that some full-time students are taking three classes at a time. I can't. That's that's nuts. That is nuts. Okay. Anyway, let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, we have, uh, well, let's see here. First of all, let's bring up our producers. Thank you very much to our producers for this uh, quarter. And we are now in the winter quarter. So thank you. Or are we in the, f- no, we're in the fall quarter. It's weird because we're about to switch over to the, anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, thank you to our producers and thank you to all of our supporters. We are very blessed by you all. And uh, yeah, I'm going to, let's let's just play our jingle while our producer credits come up because, you know, why not? Um, here we go. Messiah Matters wants to hear from you. Leave us a comment, a question or two. Call 253-461-3205. Oh, yeah. All right. Thank you very much to uh, the great listeners who collaborated in a way to bring us that jingle. And we're still waiting. We are still waiting for the Super Chat jingles. If you have one, go ahead and send it in. You can send it to our email, chagatoryresource.com, chagatoryresource.com. Okay. Uh, oh, and finally, we should say this. Actually, I got two things to plug here. Tor Resource, uh, we just opened classes at Tor Resource Institute. If you would like to go, then go sign up, Tor Resource in- or, uh, torresource.com. You can sign up for classes right now. They just went live. Um, and the other thing, I, I mean, can I do a little self-promotion? Is that okay? A little self-promotion? Okay, yes. I I published my first commentary. It's a commentary on Colossians and Philemon, and um, it's 156 pages. Now, at the same time that I did that, I also compiled an all English, all uh, all scripture prayer book. I got tired of looking at prayer books that had man made prayers that I disagreed with theologically. So I figured, you know what? I'll just put together a prayer book that's nothing but scripture. And that's what I did. So I actually just published, it's actually a pre-order, pre-release publication of both of those books. You can find them on growinginmessiah.com. Um, I don't, so I don't know if my dad's going to uh, uh, distribute them on Tor Resource or not, but um, that is up to him. But with that said, right now you can go pre-order them on growinginmessiah.com. Uh, check them out if you want to. If you don't, no skin off my back. I just thought I'd mention it because I know some people have been actually waiting. And actually, my Axe commentary is supposed to come out first, but um, I'm still I'm still proof. I'm st- rewriting. I'm doing a rewrite on the Axe commentary, and I'm in chapter 18 right now. So I still got nine chapters to proof, and so sometime in 2022, maybe we hope. Okay. Nice. Uh, I wish you shipped Congratulations. to Canada. I do ship to Canada. Try it again. I just set up, uh, so try, yeah, when I first, when I first set it up, it wasn't set up to Canada. And if you have trouble getting shipment to Canada, just let me know. I would be happy to, to ship to Canada. Okay. Okay. Let's jump in. Cause we got some fun stuff to talk about today. Oh my word. Is it fun? Sean Fisher, who is in the chat room today wrote in, this is what he said. Now I I've been sternly corrected by people recently uh, about the way that I approach people that I disagree with. So I, I am not trying to be in any way rude or anything like that, but I'm going to just put it out there. Sean, I disagree with your take on, on this just a little bit. Let's, let's look at it. This is what Sean writes in. He said, I had a discussion with a brother about Romans 14 yesterday. And I, and I said that I think with my current understanding of Romans 14, that Paul was explaining that it's more important to have fellowship with brothers in Christ than to argue over any kind of food. So, if an instance arises in which food could cause you to lose a brother, it's better to win the brother and fault on the dietary laws for the time than later teach him these finer details of the law. I disagree with this. That is not what Romans 14 is talking about at all. Um, I don't believe that Romans 14 is actually talking about kosher food. Now we're going to go on and and Sean kind of clarifies what his friend said. And I would actually take his friend's 
uh, view of this as well. But from from the get go, I should just say I do not believe that Paul believe that Paul thinks, especially if we understand the what was going on at the time. The Maccabees had literally died, literally died to not eat unkosher food when they were told you have to eat unkosher food or die. This is still in the minds of the Jews, including Paul. I don't. Th- the, Paul is not saying that he's going to fault on the kosher laws. In fact, I think that Paul is of the vein that he would rather die than than give in to eating unkosher food. I, I honestly believe that. And so, um, the the point here is that I, I I just don't see Romans fourteen talking about kosher food in that way. That uh, that fits with Acts ten. What what. Um... Peter says in in response to the vision, he says, "I've never eaten anything unclean." I mean, this right. is this is after the ascent. This is after Pentecost, right? That like it hasn't even it wouldn't even occur to me to do that. So, so uh, I agree. I agree. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't think so. Then the question is, what do we say? Romans fourteen is. What's the point here? Okay, so so there are people who have recently said that they heard me uh, debate my father. Actually, I think it might have been Jeff. Might have been Jeff. Anyway, he said I was listening to something, and uh, I heard this guy. No, it wasn't Jeff. Never mind. It was uh, it was Jesse, Jesse Bass, a slap at a bass. Anyway, he um he said that he was listening to uh, something on Romans when my dad was teaching Romans fourteen at his congregation. I was there. And he said, and, I, and your dad was teaching on Romans 14, and I heard this guy just, just going at it with your dad. And uh, it was all, you. All of a sudden, I realized it was you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, so it, for a time, I took the view that, that uh, Paul was talking about fast days and fasting. But to be honest with you, over time, I've reassessed that I actually tend to agree with my dad. I think that once again, Paul might be talking about food offered to idols in the marketplace. And this is a huge issue in the first century. The the I mean, a lot of the markets didn't have meat unless it was left over from the temples. That's all there is to it. And so, um, anyway, I I but all of that to say, I don't believe that that Paul is teaching you should default on the kosher laws to uh, to appease uh, to save a brother. That is, I mean. You could, if you took this line of reasoning, remember that that uh, eating unkosher food is said to be an abomination to God. It's an uh, it's an abomination. So just look at some of the other abominations towards God. What are some of the other abominations? Could we say that if you're going to lose a brother, you should just commit adultery? If you're going to uh, lose a brother, you should just commit homosexuality? I mean, the 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 scriptures, not me. The scriptures liken eating unkosher food with those with those with as egregious as those. Now, with that said, uh, we can't say that they are quite as egregious. And why? Because a person who commits uh, homosexual acts, they are stoned. A person who commits adultery is stoned. What is the uh, what is the punishment for eating unkosher food? The punishment is that you have a rift between in your relationship. In other words, it's an offense to God. That's the punishment. It's a relationship issue. There is no punishment. There's no temporal punishment for eating unkosher food. And so obviously, if if we're using weights and measures and we look at these commandments, obviously the unkosher, eating the unkosher food is not the same as committing adultery, committing homosexuality, you know, these kind of things. But at the same time, the, it, the scriptures do talk about them as the same kind of offense. They're an abomination. Okay, let's keep going with Sean's, with Sean's comment. He says... His friend highlights some very good points about the passage, though, and was very convincing. He reminded me that Romans 14.1 tells us that what follows is about disputable things. Then he mentioned that the food discussed in the passage were things that were considered food. So the entire definition of food in the passage would exclude unclean food as per Leviticus 11, which he claims claimed were not even considered to be food by the believers. I agree with that. There's the the um, the believers and the Jews in the first century. If you were talking about food, they would no more consider food to be pork than they would, uh, you know, a, a person who had died. Uh, you know, a person that had died. They were both detestable things. Uh, you wouldn't you wouldn't eat those things. That's not food. Okay. 
Uh, Sean goes on, if this is true, which I think it really could be, it not only changes the whole meaning of the passage, but it leaves us with less of a defense that the gospel is more important than kosher food, or does it really? Um, What do you mean by the gospel? Because I think, you know, I could get into some really hot water here. I agree that the gospel is that we, I, I mean, let's just call the gospel what Paul calls the gospel. In your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So that's the gospel message. But along with that comes covenant, right? And all the covenants are, you can't separate the covenants. So the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, all these covenants are connected. So to say that, uh, that you know, the gospel supersedes the covenant relationship with God, I think that the covenant relationship with God is intertwined with the gospel. We are able to be in covenant relationship with God because of the work of, that Christ did on, on the cross. I actually kind of think that this has been one of the missteps of not necessarily the Christian church in general, but in those who tried to uh, whittle down the gospel message. In other words, what is the gospel message? People, and if you ask this, people, I'll, I'll let you talk here in just a second. Well, I know I've been talking for a really long time and I apologize for that. Uh, if we if we ask people what is the gospel message, we have several, um, we have several different key ideas that come first and foremost. Jesus died for uh, the sins of those who repent or Jesus loves the world and sent, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Okay. These are the tip of the iceberg of the gospel message, right? And these are the like these are like the door by which we enter the gospel message. But ultimately, the gospel message is is that man sinned, uh, was separated from God because of sin. Christ came to pay the price to bring us back into covenant relationship with God. And there and and this is a key point here is covenant relationship with God. At the center of the gospel is that covenant relationship with God. Okay, I'm going to stop talking. Go ahead, go ahead, Rob. Talk. <laughs> just pick anything <laughs> no i mean in terms of romans um, 14 and- romans 14 i t- like one of the key verses there is 14 14 which is whoever and and it's important that you know you compare translations because uh, some translations say whoever thinks something's unclean to him it's unclean but that nothing is really in- unclean in and of itself and with that translation, it supports a thought that uh, looks back at the commandments concerning food in the Torah and thinks, oh, so nothing's really unclean in and of itself, but it's only a person. So if a Pharisee comes along and says, oh, that's unclean, well, that's just to him it is. You know, to me, it's not. So I can eat it. I've heard it interpreted that way many different in many different instances people have suggested that so if we look at the greek though it's he's not using the word unclean he's using this word koinos which is an innovated term it's a term um, that is new in the second temple world it's not it it's not uh, it doesn't have a corresponding hebrew word it doesn't occur in the greek torah and so the two the, the two issues we have in Romans 14 are broma, just the word for food, broma. Um, and I think I, I had it. Let me go back and see if I can find where it is. Hang um, on. While you look for that, can I just do this real quick? Um, <laughs> thank you. Love is bigger, Mary, for your super chat. Weights and measures. <laughs> was that her choice? Yes, it was. Blessed. Thanks, Mary. I like it. Okay. It's verse 15. So if, if Because of food, your brother is hurt. You're no longer walking according to love. So the word food here, broma, is the word for food in Leviticus. Food that is edible, but that is um, susceptible to being unclean. If, let's say, you know, some condition happens, like... Like, let's say there's water that is unclean or, or there's a carcass and then water runs on that carcass and then runs down and touches this broma, something you'd normally be able to eat, that now you can't eat that broma because it's now unclean, according to the Torah. It doesn't use the word koinos, which is the word in 14. 
And so what Paul says he learned from Yeshua is that, and he says, I'm, I know and I'm convinced in Yeshua or by Yeshua that nothing is koinos in and of itself, but the person who calls it koinos to them, it's koinos. And I see that that's a really important point. Koinos is, is a specialization label of saying all the broma, all the things that are acceptable according to the Torah, it's another level of like authenticity. If something is koinos, it is, oh, that's that has been disqualified from being eaten. And it, it would fit your situation. Someone could say, and Paul makes this point in one of the Corinthians letters. He says, if you're about to eat something and they say, oh, that was offered to an idol, Paul says, don't eat it. Right. Not because it, you don't even know if it's true or not. You, it might not, it, the guy just might be saying that, but he says, you still don't eat it. And, and now that's a situation that's different than our world today because, you know, for many different reasons, but Romans 14 is not talking about the food laws of clean and unclean being done away with. It's not suggesting that for temporarily they can be done away with for the sake of some greater cause. It's not saying that either. It has to do with the, this word koinos, which is a label that some specialist Jews, probably uh, of the Pharisaic bent, were trying to up the ante and, and, and show their holiness, like how stringent we are of what food we will eat and what food we will not eat. And here's another, here's another example of that where koinos doesn't necessarily have to correlate with unclean. It could be food that, because we know from the association texts, which are early rabbinic texts that are talk about the groups from the second temple period that like Caleb, let's say you invited me to your house and I came to your house and we lived in Israel. And I, I thought, oh, Caleb didn't properly tithe this barley. So the, so here he's offering me bread made of barley, but I know it for a fact that he didn't tithe it. I'm not, I can't eat it. It's koinos to me, right? It's I can't eat it because I'm I, I'm now questioning your intent of whether or not you're keeping all these other commandments. And another example is whether you know. Do they wash hands properly at, at Caleb's house? Do they wash dishes properly? Okay, wait, hang on. I have I have a real life I have a real life example of this. Okay. So uh, anyone who knows me and my family knows that we go through very interesting dietary uh, <laughs> portions of our life. I was a pescatarian, which means I only, I the only meat that I ate was fish. Which uh, and I was a pescatarian for for quite some time. I think two and a half or three and a half years. Um, of my life. And uh, that happened back in the 2015 area. And uh, during that time, I actually had a website. Anyway, um, pescatarian.com. No, 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 no. But uh, okay. it was, it was uh, it, actually, it's embarrassing. I, it was calebhag.com. Anyway. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I just blogged on that site. And I, w- I had made the uh, passing comment that Jews uh, tend to be more. Uh, there, I, I, I forget exactly what it was, but it was something like, uh, that Christians are more accepting of people, whereas Jews are not religious Jews in general are not as accepting. And this Jewish gentleman, uh, who was called the college rabbi picked oh, it up. I remember you told me, okay, I, I remember you he, told me he picked this. up this story and he was not happy about it. How, you know, he wrote a, he wrote a response about how dare you? Of course, Christ, of course, Jews are just as accepting as Christians. And I said, okay. Now, keep in mind at this time, I was I was wearing a yarmulke. I, you know, my my house was koshered because there was no meat in it. So and and uh, so it was just a dairy kitchen. So we had a glock and kosher fish and dairy. Are fish and dairy are not a problem. And so I had a glock kosher kitchen, and um, I mean, so on and so forth. And so I said, I'll tell you what. Why don't you come over to my house when you're in Washington State? Come over to my house for Arab Shabbat. I said my my kosher my my kitchen is glot kosher. Uh, we're Shomer Shabbos, you know all these things. And this started a discussion on his blog between Jews on whether or not he was allowed to come into my house. 
And if he did come into my house, was he allowed to eat any of the food? Because I could secretly pray a prayer to Jesus over the food in the kitchen and then bring it to the table. And that he could okay that's that's exactly what we're talking about exactly this is great, uh, in, and, and, in today terms and he oh and he and they they determined that he could drink wine but not if i said the blessing over the wine first of all and he he'd would, have to be present at the he opening would have or to open it himself he would have to open it himself and the wine would not be allowed to leave the table and and basically i think somebody even said that that he could drink his own wine but I, I wouldn't be able to drink his well, wine. We, we've seen that in, in SBL special get-togethers, after-hours minglings, where you have or you have observant Jews and, and Gentiles, and they're mingling on a social <laughs> academic level. You'll have a, a, an Orthodox Jew who will stand. He'll open the wine. Right. And he'll stand at the table, and then he'll pour wine for you. So, like, if I came over, you know, he'd, he would pour me a glass of wine. So and and that is what they call mevushal. It's mevushal. Right. It means it is. Uh, uh, and so, with, but yeah, I, I mean, but the but the point it's here, a protective here, element here's that the, is not in the Torah. There's two. There's two funny things about this though. Number one, dude proved my point because I'll go into anybody's home. Did he acknowledge that? Did no, he no, he would never acknowledge that. that. But but ultimately, the point is, is like you won't even come into my house and sit down and, and eat with me. Now I'll go into any Christian's house. And any, I mean, I'll go into any atheist house and if they, and this has happened, people, I remember specifically somebody brought out a green bean casserole. I was at a Christian at a fellow brother's house, green bean, bean casserole was brought out, had ham in it. What did I do? Did I throw the table over and say, oh, I'm not, no, of course not. All I did was just pass it on and took the rest of the food. But the, this this rabbi wouldn't even come into the house and sit down and and, and share a cup of, of coffee with me. But but that that is also true even in the you don't even have to have Christians in the scenario. Right. You could have Orthodox Jews and secular Jews. Right. You know, you know, or or you could have a, even a Reformed rabbi and uh, an Orthodox rabbi, and it's a one way street. Right. Because the Orthodox doesn't, he's like, dude, sorry, I, I abide by a, a, a stringent halakhic code that defines, that makes this decision for me. This is, remember, the Orthodox Jew is not sitting there, you know, thinking for himself. The, the halakha makes the decision for him. Okay, this goes into a totally different con concept, too. And the reason why is because why do you, th I, I believe, now I've been around the Messianic movement my whole life. I've seen a lot of people defect from the Messianic movement and move into, uh, you know, deny the Messiah and move directly into Orthodox Judaism. I am convinced that one of the reasons why is because what people want, especially people who are not sure of their identity, what they want is a checklist. This is what you do. This is what you don't do. Black and white. Do you have a list of things I can and can't do? Yes, here it is. And so they find ultimate identity in the list of things you can and can't do. But the scriptures are not actually clear cut like that. Sorry. Oh, that's right. Rabbit trail. All right, let's move on. What do you say? Or do you have anything else on that? No, no, that's good. Okay. That's good. I, that's good. I want to I want to move on to um well first let's just go back over it 253-465-3205. That's how you can leave us a voicemail. You can also shoot us an email, cheghetorresource.com. Um, and you can listen to all of our past archived uh, shows on messiahmatters.com. And don't forget to sub subscribe because we need you to. We need it. We need it. Okay. Um, this is an interesting, this was a really interesting uh, email. And it was an interesting email because of, well, so there's several emails that kind of go together. And they didn't mean to go together, but they, they did go together. The first one is actually by Brandon, who's in the chat room. Brandon said, I was looking for a video you guys might have done before on the topic, but couldn't find one. I would be interested in uh, to hear yours and Rob's thoughts on Paul's Nazarite vow and why he took such a vow. Acts 18, 18, 21, 23 through 24 and number six. Um, so this is going to just kind of set up our, our larger topic here. Ultimately, um, I don't think that we can actually um speak to that the text doesn't tell us why why uh paul took a nazarite vow um all it does is tell us that he well it doesn't tell us that he took a nazarite vow does it 
in Acts 18, it says that he, uh, he, I, I believe it says that he shaved his head. Is that right? Let's look. I don't want to screw this up. I've, I've taught on this. I'm almost positive it says you that. are. Yeah, you are working on your Acts commentary. Uh, yeah, yes. he he had a vow. There's a couple times where it says because he had a vow. Yeah, and it says that he has a vow, but uh, there's problems with this. It says he and he cut his hair for he was under a vow. Now there's no other vow that we know of where a person would cut their hair um, because of the vow, except for a Nazarite vow, which is why right. we believe it was a Nazarite vow. Um, however, why would he cut his hair when he's abroad instead of do it when he comes back to the temple? That's unknown. However, some people believe that uh, in the first century, they believed that they could end the vow and then they could just bring the sacrifices later. The Torah never says that. Um, however, that's kind of what it seems like, because what happens? He, remember that he's up in like he's up in like southwest Turkey, modern day Turkey. Right. When he when he cuts his hair and then he comes all the way back down. And then when he gets back down to Jerusalem, Acts 21 um, they say, okay, take these guys took a vow, go and pay for their, for their sacrifice in the temple. And it doesn't say at that time that, that Paul is going to take a sacrifice himself. I don't know if we could say that it was implied, but it is possible. But that, that at this point is when Paul takes the sacrifice himself to the temple to finish out a Nazarite vow. But the, I, but the question ultimately comes, could he have finished a Nazarite vow by cutting his hair up in southwestern Turkey if uh, he didn't bring sacrifices? And the answer is, according to the Torah, no, he could not have. Right? Mm-hmm. But why Paul took a Nazarite vow? I mean, the reason I think people would take Nazarite vows is to show a devotion or to uh, try to rededicate themselves to... Um, maybe dedicate themselves to God, show God how much they were uh, fervent for his law, fervent for, you know, for him and for the covenant that they had with him. But I mean, ultimately we can't speak to why Paul took that, that vow. That's not in the text. We can only say that he took a vow. Okay. So with all of that said, and do you want to say anything on that, Rob? No, are we going to listen to that? Oh yeah. Oh good. Okay. Yeah. I got, I got three clips here. Okay. So, We do have to set this up just a little bit. We got another uh, email this week from someone who sent us a a video. And the video is seven minutes long. It's of a New York, uh, obviously uh, orthodox, looks Hasidic rabbi, um, felt yarmulke. So those who know, uh, know what I'm talking about. He um, there's a, There's another code. Yeah, there's right. another code right there, right? What, what, what? Right when, when a, when a, when a Jew wearing a, a kippah sees another Jew with a kippah, the part of what he does is look at the kippah. It's, then, it's it's a it's a it's a marker, and also the tzitzit. Right, it's a marker. Yeah, that because that's an it's a kind of inspection of. What, okay, what sure. your theology is. Yeah, right, exactly. You know what? We so, have this in Christianity too, though, right? And I'll, I'll tell you why. I, I'll tell you why. Another story time again. Story time with Caleb again. We need we need a story time with <laughs> Caleb song. There's another one. There, there, is a, uh, there, was a, uh, there is a little diner up uh, near where my parents live called Naps, K-N-A-P-P-S, Naps. We could go there every once in a while. It's very dinerish. Anyway, uh, we went one uh, Sunday morning. I believe it was a Mother's Day or something to that effect. Maybe it was my mother's birthday or something. And there was a group of obvious Christians. Now, how did we know that they were Christians? Because one of these guys had a giant, like, silver chain that came down to a giant, and I mean giant, black cross. That And you could tell, I mean... From a like mile a away, style. this guy was Anglican, and you could tell he had the collar and everything. So when you see the cross, you know what kind of cross a person has. You know if they have the beads going down and then underneath their shirt, what are they? They're Catholic, of course, right? You you know if if they just have the you know if they if they have Jesus actually on the cross, probably Catholic. You know, like there's all these different levels, so it's kind of the same thing. Anyway, keep going. 
Okay, so no, that 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 was it. So so I was that was just a footnote on you noticing. Yeah. Oh yeah. The the yarmulke on the. Okay. Yeah, and and you can tell a lot by if you know the code essentially the different codes. Um, then you can kind of tell. So, for instance, you know, a knitted keepa, uh, depending on how thick the knit is, will mean one thing. The thicker the knit, probably more breast lover. If it's a if it's a real tight knit, uh, that means one thing. If it's a tight knit and really small, you're getting into reform, almost reform. And then if it's worn up front. Then this person has a very specific rabbi, um, you know. Well, yeah, they match their rabbi. Is yeah. your is your yarmulke black and or white? The colorful, the colorful knitted ones are are national religious Zionists, so they'll be like national Zion. Like in other words, those Jews that are happy to serve in the military, right? For Israel, um, the which hippies differentiates from the yeah, but <laughs> the they're, Israeli but they're, hippies. But they're modern North. They're they're, they're they. Uh, <laughs> They adhere to some, you know, some halakhic lifestyle, but different from like Meshirim, where they do not, they're anti-military. They, they have exemption because. And, yeah. And the, but, but then you get the breast lovers too. And the breast lovers are all over the place because you got the breast lovers. Too. I mean, they're super mystical. It's super mystical. They remind me of like the hate Ashbury, like the that is the, exactly um, right. The uh, the well, maybe not string cheese, but definitely Grateful Dead. Right? Yeah, hey man, I was around when Jerry was around, bro. <laughs> right? Yeah. All right, let's keep going. So anyway, um, this rabbi, however, is Orthodox, and you can tell that this guy has done some some work. Now, this video link in the description, by the way, of the entire video is on the Jews for Ju- Judaism website, and so which they, I'm so happy about because we're going to totally sink this battleship <laughs> well no i mean okay hang on just a second now, now i'm i'm before we even play a clip i'm gonna give full disclosure here i think that this rabbi has has actually hit on a very uh weak spot within agreed. mainstream christian theology agreed in fact i would agree with him i think that what he has found in term and this is something i wrote in my commentary what he has found in the text of Acts 21 is something that that I don't think any good Christian commentator has been able to uh, to, to explain. And I looked at a lot of commentaries on right. this. You, you end up going into the the one Torah uh, world to get an answer. Not you have only to, that, yeah. though. That, not only that though. He's. I, I want to, if, if if time permits, to share some insight as to his lack of. Um, honesty with his own tradition. I completely agree with you. I know so, where you're so, going with that too. But, uh, I, but I agree that he, he's got a good point and I'm not surprised that he couldn't find someone to answer his question. That was not surprising. Fellow student uh, in the chat room says uh, different Christian identity markers, tight pants, prosperity, beard and ties reformed, etc. What, no, wait, what's the, what's the uh, tattoo uh, one? Uh, the, yeah. Where the pastor I, has to... Uh, I think that's, I think that's pretty prosperity. I think we were looking at, at, uh, I think that well, I I suppose that could go either way because actually uh, you have the uh, you have the suit and tie, but you know with tattoos and scotch, that's also reform. You know, if 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 they're smoking cigars and drinking scotch, uh, rest, uh, re- restless and reform or whatever it was, young okay, restless okay, and reform. We we, we got to keep going. Sorry, sorry, we're all over the place today. Let's listen it's to fun. this rabbi. Acts twenty one is what he's talking about. Let's take a listen. It was very complex and very broad. From all the things in the law, from all the laws, all the commandments in the Torah, the only one that James could pick out was a Nazarite offering. He could have brought a regular offering, a Thanksgiving offering. He could have not have, it didn't have to be an offering in the temple. It could have been wearing tefillin, observing Shabbos. It could have been eating matzah on Pesach. There could have been so many different things that he could have had Paul do publicly, and that would be a demonstration that he's loyal to the law. From the Christian scriptures, it's obvious that people that were loyal to the law wore tefillin. They wore phylacteries. So let Paul put on some phylacteries and walk around, and then everyone will see that he's loyal to the law. Why does he have to go to the temple and pay for the Nazarite offerings? And to me, the answer is very obvious. Because Paul was the one that thought of this new idea that Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And James... And the following in Jerusalem, the Christians, the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem didn't believe that. 
Okay, let's stop right there. We got a he, lot he going on. He doesn't bother even citing Paul, does he? He's he's no. painting a straw man. He's painting up a straw man. Well, yeah. He, uh, it seems as though he's actually studied the scriptures, the the apostolic scriptures a bit. What? But there's a lot of there's just a lot going on here. First of all, I agree with him. I think that the the um, what? It, why is it that the Jerusalem, what we call the Jerusalem Council or the Jerusalem, you know, the, the elders in the Jerusalem Church? Why do they decide this is what you need to do? And I think that there's multiple multiple reasons for that. And I think that he's actually hit on a question that I think that most of Christianity needs to ask. Why did they choose I, this? Agreed. Because there's there's plenty of things. Now, some people could say, we and, and there may be truth in this, it could be said, the temple was the the central worship place of the of of the Jewish religion, and so for Paul to go and and do something in the temple was needed because that's where it would have been seen. Okay, but he brings up a good point. Why doesn't Paul just put on phylacteries? Why you know put on some tefillin? Or why doesn't he just go to the temple? Why and why not do you know a, a Thanksgiving offering? Why why this offering? Thoughts. Do you want to take this? Well, I think he his characterization of Paul as Jesus is a sacrifice to end all sacrifices. That is a miss. Right. Uh, that's a that's a straw man here. And not only is it a straw man, but I think that he and the rest of Christendom has read that into the text. Now I understand so, it. I understand it. Cry, cry. Are you going to play where he talks about the sin offering? Yeah. Okay. So I, I think I'll, so. I think so. Um, well, let, let's in, for, in, in case it's not there. What, what in case it's not one of the clips? What he goes on to say, this this rabbi is that James does not believe that sin offerings have ceased. Right, and he says Paul believes sin offerings have ceased. That's that's what he sets up, and then he says so. When James picks a certain thing to have Paul do publicly, he doesn't pick something that. Uh, is on the side. He goes to. He he says it's a it's a at the heart of where Paul's wrong, and so makes Paul do something against Paul's own conscience. Yeah, but but what he's doing is he's picking up he's t- picking up mainstream Christian theology on this, and yeah, I oh, and, agreed, and agreed, I agree agreed, completely agreed, agreed. with him on, on on that. And the idea is because the Nazarite vow in the in the completion of the vow there is a sin offering is involved, right? And so what this rabbi is portraying is that James knows that and says, ha, huh, I got him. Right. And, and they're fighting over James, this. He's, yeah, he's, he's yeah. pitting James and Paul against each other. But that's and not the case. Telling Paul to do this uh, vow. And then Paul, like, I guess, sheepishly does it, and he, which includes a, a, a sin offering. And then James wins the day. Let's just, I, that's the way he's portraying. Let's, let, let's just put this in, in in a proper time frame, and I, and I want to do this for a specific reason. I when we were talking about dispensationalism at one point, I brought uh, a pastor contacted me, and he was saying, "Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. This is this is egregious. You know, you you have no understanding of, of dispensationalism." I said, "Okay, well, what do you you know?" He said, "the the the uh, the sacrifices were done away when Christ died on the cross," and I said, "Well, then why did the apostles and Paul?" continue to do sacrifices in the temple and I cited Acts 21 and he said there was a year between for uh, of God allowing the them to understand this theology well this is not a year later by the way this is about 21 years later and and that's that's accepted by just about everyone uh, just about every scholar that I that I've read has put this at least 20 years uh, down the road and we can we can we can put that into chronology in the book of Acts. With all of that said, it's not like they had they didn't have time to, to search the scriptures. Paul goes off into different places to search the scriptures and to really understand his experience on the road to Emmaus and all these different things. And so the point is, is that we, we got a huge amount of time. The Jerusalem church and Paul are still going to the temple and they're still offering sacrifices. They didn't get the memo that the rest of Christendom did. The rest of Christendom says, oh, Christ was the last sacrifice and we don't need to do sacrifices anymore. 
And ultimately, there's multiple reasons why the why uh, I think that uh, paying for the Nazarite vow of these men would have been uh, a sign. Number one, it's expensive, and it would have shown his seriousness. Number two, it does interact with the temple, and I think that Paul clearly wants to show that he believes that the that the Jerusalem temple is important, and that those sacrifices are still needed. Not needed. Not needed, by the way for uh, to be to be uh, have your sins done away with. I don't believe that and I don't think that ever was the, the case for the for the sacrifices. Right. But rather, it was uh, multifaceted. One of them, one of the reasons that people were doing sacrifices was because of clean unclean, right? So the idea of being ritually clean was still in effect. And still is today, we just don't have a temple to become clean. Nonetheless, um, all of these things, and then also there was other reasons for uh, sacrifices. Let's go on. I got another clip. This is only 21 seconds. Let's take a listen. That means the two questions I was looking for an answer is. Okay, hang on. I want to, uh, sorry. I need to set this up a little bit more. Uh, this rabbi says, okay, so I wanted to know the answer to this question. I went down to a Christian university. I went to their library with a friend and we get all these commentaries out and we have all these commentaries. We're looking at Acts 21 and my friend gets bored and he says, I'll be right back. He goes and he finds a professor and brings the professor and he says, look, here, I found you a professor. Just ask your question and he'll be able to answer it for you. And he, and he says, okay, I asked the, uh, this professor these two questions. These are his two questions. That means the two questions I was looking for an answer is why was why were the members of the Jerusalem Church still bringing offerings in the temple after the death of Jesus? Question number one. Question number two is why was this particular act, the act of bringing an offering in the temple, chosen as a demonstration of Paul's loyalty to the law of Moses? So those are his two questions, Rob. Those are great, great questions. Yeah, exactly. They are great questions. Okay, should we listen to another clip, or should we answer those sure, both sure, questions? Sure. Yeah. Okay, here's our final clip. So I asked him my question. I asked him, why were members of the Jerusalem church still bringing offerings in the, the Jerusalem temple after the death of Jesus? And just to compound the question is, don't try to tell me that they're bringing the offerings as a, as a uh, symbolic remembrance to the death of Jesus. Because these offerings were being processed by the temple establishment. The priests that were processing the offering were not Christians. They were not believers in Jesus. They are regular they're regular people, they're regular Jews that no clue about Christianity. And furthermore, this act of that they're asking Paul to bring this offering is meant as a public demonstration. It's meant as a public demonstration that the audience should read it and understand it as a demonstration of what? A demonstration of Paul's loyalty to the law of Moses. And the law of Moses says that the offerings, the temple offerings, provide atonement for sin. So obviously the members of the Jerusalem church, the people that lived with Jesus, we're talking about Peter and James, and all the disciples that lived with Jesus did not believe that Jesus died for a, a, a everlasting atonement. Okay, hang on just a sec. Wow, now, this guy's twisted. Hang on just a sec. Okay, so first of all, Evan Dollar in the chat room says, the old age had not yet passed away, the trans the transition phase. I, I don't know how you would be able to uphold that from Scripture. Uh, as soon as Christ, uh, there is no transition phase. The law is the same before and after Christ dies, and we see that clearly in Scripture. We and this passage is a great example. Um, but beyond that, the and I'm not I don't know if Evan is is uh, just stating that's what people have said or if he is actually holding this. But my point is is that we don't see anywhere in Scripture where it talks about some transition phase from one part of the law to another. It's just not there. In fact, we have the opposite. Now, to this rabbi's point, first of all, he's absolutely right about the fact that people are still bringing sacrifices to the temple. It shows, and why do they want Paul to bring a sacrifice to the temple? Paul could have said, no, I'm not going to do that because the sacrifices have been done away with. Or don't you guys know that we're in a transition period and all these are going away? No, he doesn't say any of that. What does he say? Great, let's go. He is willing to go to the temple and participate in sacrifices that are performed by non-believers in the temple. This is a very important point, and I think that this rabbi has really hit the nail on the head with this one. Now, where he goes totally awry and where, where he goes totally off base is the notion that, um, I mean, at the, let's listen to the very end of this again because he, 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 I, want, I want to get it right. To read it and understand it as a demonstration of what? A demonstration of Paul's loyalty to the law of Moses. And the law of right. Moses says that the offerings, the temple offerings, provide atonement for sin. Okay, hang on just a sec. The, okay. What does it mean that they that, that the sacrifices provide atonement for sin? 
it, it, what he's neglecting here is all of the prophets. Isaiah is a, a perfect example, but there's plenty more, right? What does Isaiah say? Stop bringing your stinking sacrifices. Why? If they atone for sins, why would their hearts their hearts were far from me? Exactly. exactly. It's, that's exactly that's one of the points I wanted to make. It's not the sacrifice that takes away sin. Right. It's it's God commands, God commands it. No doubt about that. Right. But but that's not uh and Hebrews gets into that. He says, I mean, even you, you know, I, I like to just remind people of Aaron, the first high priest. I mean, imagine he, God says, this is what you're going to do. You're going to wear, you're going to go in, you're going to, you're going to confess sin for your house on day of atonement. And you're going to go in and you're going to bring blood from a bowl, etc. And, and you're not going to die if you, if, Right. And then you're going to come back out and then you're going to come back in with, you know, concerning the sins of Israel. And the point is, if you if you don't come with the incense and with the blood, you will die. So so Aaron's just like, like, think of Aaron, like the fear of God. Like, right. I'm, I've got to do this. Like and so but it's understanding that he understood Aaron understood what confession of sin meant. He understood the problem of sin in the human heart. And so when he was confessing sins for his for himself and for his household, he knew what those he knew what the, the problem of sin was for his house. And he 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 confessed it to the Lord. And when it came to atoning for Israel, the same thing. He bore as the high priest, he was aware of the sin of what was going on. And and that's what's acceptable to God. Not like you point out, Caleb, uh, Isaiah one. They've got the temple. They've got a priesthood that knows how to do the. They know how to slaughter an animal. They know there's not a problem of facility. They've got all the tools. They understand the language, but it's all he's, he says. You know, the temple can't stand if the heart is wrong, right? And that's and that's what happens with Solomon's temple being destroyed, and that's what happens in Yeshua's day. Not one stone will be left on another. But and another aspect of this is that he misses is that the uh, even even during the P- passover right after the resurrection they they were going back to the temple you know every day of the 7 days of unleavened bread there is a sin offering that's a, that accompanies the burnt offerings even on shavuot there is a sin offering that accompanies the special offerings for shavuot it's a commanded uh, a sin offering same thing in in Feast of Tabernacles. There are commanded sin offerings. The the Nazarite vow, as part of the package, when the person enters in the vow, they understand that with the burnt offering, there's also a sin offering that is part of the package, and and those those offerings are are part of our. It's a language that God wants us to learn. I can't. In other words, if I'm going to approach God in in the way that He uh, has has set in terms of, and it can be equally a man or a woman that does a Nazarite vow. And I'm going to step into this box and and be set apart as a, a, a special kind of holy that equals that of the high priest. Remember, a man and woman can do this. Then part of that conversation with the Lord has to do with what a burnt offering is. What is a sin offering? It's like a curriculum for, for that. So, so what's funny here is that he says that when James tells Paul, okay, well, I'm, I've got gotcha. you. You need to uh, do a, a Nazarite vow. Um, and that's going to somehow conflict with what Paul teaches, that Yeshua is the sin offering. It's not, it is an obligatory sin offering. It's not a sin offering. The sin offering of the Nazarite vow is not because the Nazarite sinned. It's the same thing when Mary gives birth to Yeshua. She has to offer a sin offering. The woman, when a woman has a child and then she gets, she goes to the temple on the, you know, whatever. If it's it's shorter for a male, longer for a female. One of the offerings is a sin offering, and 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 but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean she had committed a sin and need and has a corresponding confession, and and that's that's really important. Okay. Because the, the the general sin offering is when a person transgresses the Torah 
and they and they uh, repent, and that's independent of the commanded sin offerings. Like it's independent of a feast day. It's independent of of being a Nazar of Nazarite vow. There's that. There's a sin offering associated with that as well. Um, so we we got so much. He, go okay, go he, ahead. He 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 covers all over that, and and he he wants to leverage a uh, a kind of disagreement or division between Paul and James. And oh, one other point, and then I'll... I'll okay, yeah, yeah, you got to let totally, me jump in here, man. He totally neglects that this is Luke writing and that Luke wrote all of Luke and all of Acts. Luke hangs out with Paul. Right. And Luke, time and time again, shows the Torah of Moses being upheld. Okay, we got so much going on in the chat room right now. We have to address a lot of it. Um, Colleen is the first one we will uh, address here. Colleen says, so what's the purpose of Yeshua being our high priest? Does he do sacrifices on our behalf? Uh, and then later she says, so how does that, and someone says, no, it was once for all time. She says, so how does that happen? Because doesn't it say if we sin, we have an advocate with the father. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. So this is an ongoing process. It is an ongoing process, but you're thinking within temporal uh, time concerns. In other words, uh, the, the sacrifice of, of uh, Christ, his blood atones for, for sin of the elect in both directions, not just forward. So in other words, that moment in time uh, uh, is it, it goes both ways. And then she says uh, he is in the heavenly temple giving gifts and doing sacrifice. Hebrews 8.3. No, I'm sorry. That is a misinterpretation of Hebrews 8.3. Hebrews 8.3 says for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer, which he does. It says later that he went in once for all time. That's what it says. Unlike the priests who have to come back and, and offer a sacrifice every year, talking of the Yom Kippur sacrifice, rather, Christ had a sacrifice that was once for all time. So that's the point, is that is that uh, Christ's blood, He what, what did he do after he presented his blood in the heavenly temple? He sat down at the right hand of the Father. So is his work done? Yes, in terms of, of offering the, the payment for sin. However, what does it also tell us? It tells us that Christ continually uh, makes intercession for us, and he does this through prayer. He continually lives to make intercession for us. This is done through prayer, but not through continual sacrifice. Uh, Evan uh, uh, responds. He says, I would argue that there was a trans transition phase. I'm working now. I can't expound like I would like, but you see the transition phase from three uh, from 30 AD to 70 AD. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. No, that's a bad translation. It says, in speaking of the first, he makes the first one obsolete. He's talking about the priesthood, not the covenant. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old, it is uh, old is ready to vanish. Yeah, that was the priesthood, which was going to vanish in... Um, in uh, well, it did. It did in Jeremiah's day. Jeremiah, when he prophesied right. that, the temple of Solomon was still standing. The whole, the whole hope that Jeremiah is giving to Israel is, is reminding, back when we were talking about Isaiah, that God wants the heart first, and without the heart, without right. without a pure heart before the Lord, without truth, and love and covenant faithfulness, the the sacrifices are have no no value to the Lord. They're not. You can't bribe God, and He took that temple away, and and the land kept her Sabbaths according to the covenant because because the covenant endured. Right, it was seventy uh, sevens. Uh, yep, or seventy, you know, whatever the the Babylonian captivity was for the the it was based on the cycle of seven for the land getting her Sabbaths, and then they came back. They built a temple. Yeshua says, "This is my Father's house. You've made it a den of thieves." You know, I mean, and so, and then again, a re, but this time. What Jeremiah was prophesying here, you have the empowerment of the of the core message to go out to the whole world, um, and uh, our our new life in Yeshua is that is not a different faith than Abraham right. or Moses or David or Jeremiah or Isaiah, um, and so. 
that we, we have to, I, that's a good point. What you said earlier, we have to remember that the idea of God being outside of time. And actually, uh, Colleen came back. I'm, I, I'm not actually sure what is meant by this. She says, I don't agree with you, brother. The thing that was done once and for all was in giving his life. I totally agree with you. That's what we're talking about. He doesn't have to atone for his sins because he's perfect. I agree. He atoned for our sins once for all time. That's the point. When he died, it, it atoned for all of the elect sins in both directions. He doesn't have right. to make other sacrifices. Yeshua is not in the, in the heavenly mm-hmm. temple taking a goat and, and, and sacrificing it. That is a picture of what Yeshua did on the cross. We so, have to remember that the cross was not a plan B. Right, exactly. It wasn't, like, it wasn't like plan A, I'm going to give them these commandments and sacrifices, and if they just do it right, they'll be forgiven. And then they messed up, and he's like, well, you know, God's like, well, what am I going to do? Well, okay, plan B. No, from the foundation of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world means that all the Torah depends on what on who the person of Yeshua and the, the teachings and the act and and uh, sacrificial giving of of himself. Okay, hang on just a sec. Colleen comes back and says, "Are we going to uh, ignore Ezekiel?" I, and actually, I completely agree with you. I think that Ezekiel actually puts the nail in the coffin for uh, the the argument that the sacrifices weren't done away in seventy. So, I mean, this Ezekiel, what, what chapter, like Ezekiel 18 or Ezekiel? Well, I would, I would say that the, the last 10 chapters of Ezekiel talking about the prince in the temple is a perfect example of the fact that the Messiah comes back and, and reigns from the temple. I believe that the priest or that the prince is the Messiah reigning in the temple. And what do we see? We see sin sacrifice. We see, um, we see, I mean, we see a sacrificial system on earth once again. Why is that? It's not because there are sacrifices going uh, on in, in the heavenly temple. No, it's the fact that there is a temporal aspect. The temporal temple is different than the heavenly temple. That's all there is to it. Because Why? And here's another bit. You have to remember, we have to remember that sin, the wages of sin is death. And so when, when an animal is slaughtered and, and is bled out, as a sin offering, the 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 death of the animal, the physical, uh, you know, the the shedding of the blood, is is the symptom. The core is the death that has occurred. The the shedding of the blood is just the final expression of the death that already happened. The death happens when the sin is. That's the separation from life, right? God is God is the living God. He's holy. Sin and death cannot abide with so, him. So, yeah. So there are some good questions that have just been asked in the chat room. So Jeff says, Colleen, are you saying that the and and I think these are good qualifying questions because I'm not exactly sure the point that Colleen's actually trying to make. So maybe we've misunderstood something here. And it's hard when you're when maybe you're dealing- we should revisit this next week. Oh, we're not having a show next week. That's right. Uh, but it, it is hard um, when it, it is hard when people are trying to text as opposed to uh, people who are talking. And so it's kind of a, uh, but Jeff says, Colleen, are you saying that the death of Christ didn't atone for sin once and for all and that we need ongoing sacrifice? Uh, And then Christina says, what's your perspective on what uh, Jesus accomplished? Colleen responds with, I believe is still is currently atoning for us as our high priest. So, so I think that this actually might be a uh, a push that there are sa- there there are some kind of sacrifices going on in the heavenly temple. I'm not sure how you would uh, how you would be able to uphold that uh, with respect to Hebrews Hebrews eight and nine. And are the, they flesh and blood animals? Yeah, exactly. I don't. I like how um, would that happen? Um, and and not only that, but is it, would that mean that the temporal temple sacrifices are a exact replica of what's going on in the heavenly pa- passage, uh, heavenly temple? If that's the case, remember that Christ says when he at the last supper he says, "Behold, I will uh, I will not eat of it again until I eat of it w- uh, with you in the in the kingdom." So he's not he's he's certainly not uh, uh, sacrificing a Passover sacrifice. That's for sure. So right there, we can see that there is clearly a difference between the the two the two temple orders, the temporal and the heavenly. Anyway, this has been a great conversation. I think we can pick it up again in two in two weeks. 
And actually, Colleen and others, if you would like to write out your thoughts, uh, uh, Evan uh, Dollar, if you'd like to write out your thoughts too and send them in an email, I would appreciate that because we would be able to maybe uh, see a little bit more of what it is exactly you're trying to um, say and how you're trying to say it so that we could maybe even continue this conversation in two weeks. Um, it, it is a good conversation. And I think it's one that we need to have. One of the things that I think that we can agree with, well, actually, that's not true because I think Evan was actually um, trying to argue that the, the uh, temple sacrifices are not going to happen again. I'm not sure how we would square that with the end of Zechariah or how we'd uh, square that with the end of Ezekiel or how we'd square it with the end of Isaiah. It seems as though when uh, when Christ comes back the second time, there's clearly it, the way that I read it. And I and I'm more than happy to see other um, other uh, you know perspectives on this. But the way that I see it is that there are sacrifices again in the temple performed not by a high priest. I do see the prince come and take over the station of high priest so that the high priest actually doesn't seem to come back. It seems as though the the the, the prince is the one who's doing all of the sacrificial work in the temple. So that's the way that I see it. And uh, anyway, if you disagree with that, please shoot us an email or give us a call, 253-465-3205. It's 253-465-3205. You can shoot us an email, cheg at torresource.com, C-H-E-G-G at torresource.com. We would love to hear from you. And uh, like I said, we will not be here next week because I will be in Texas at the Evangelical Theological Society. If you're there, I hope to see you and I would love to sit down and chat with you, have a cup of coffee, something like that. Otherwise, we will be back in two weeks on this show and we will try to hash more of this out. We hope that this conversation has done at least one thing, and that is to glorify our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Well, I think you know why. It's because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.